an absolutely beautiful day the Lord has blessed us with to be able to gather uh, to worship. Uh, Doug and Rachel, you're probably watching. Uh, we miss you guys and praying for you. So let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day, uh, the opportunity we have to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Stephen has already prayed this morning, this Christmas season. Jesus, it's about you, God. It's about your grace and your love, your kindness and your mercy towards your people. But Jesus, you came to save your people from our sin all that repent and trust in Christ for salvation and we could never say thank you enough and we thank you that we have your revelation your word in our heart language this morning and so as we open up the words of life may we be attentive give us eyes to see give us ears to hear the truth God of who you are and our desperate need for the gospel this morning. And it's in the wonderful name of Christ that we pray together. Amen. Well, let's turn back to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at 27 through 33, specifically verses 31 through 33. But Mark chapter 8, 27 through 33. Before we read the text this morning, as I was preparing and praying, I thought about, you know, the Christmas season and, you know, it is a season filled with joy, uh, a season of giving, a season of reflecting upon Christ and we sing, you know, Christmas songs and uh, we focus on the Christmas story uh, in the Bible and the smiles of the faces of our, our children. And there's a lot to be thankful for. But then we also realize that for many, uh, the Christmas season can be difficult because it's a reminder of lost loved ones, those that are no longer you know, at our tables when we gather. Uh, we just finished up our first grief share uh, class as a church and there's a lot of hard things that people, whether within the life of our own church or in our community, uh, it's a struggle uh, this Christmas season. Or maybe you're in a family where there's strained relationships, and so the Christmas season is not necessarily uh, a time servant. We have a God who grieves with his people. A God who has suffered. A God who understands the reality of suffering. It was interesting in our grief share class, the main thing that people shared that was the most helpful for them as we walked through all those different lessons was to either come to an understanding or a better understanding that Jesus was grieving with them in their time of suffering, in their time of hurt. The simple verse in the Bible of John 11:35, that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus and he was weeping with Mary and Martha and their family. 
So as we come to our passage today, those are the truths of God's word that I pray will sustain you and encourage you and strengthen you this Christmas season. So let's look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, well, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now let me give you just a little bit of background of Mark chapter 8 that we've been in. And we don't have time to go back and read the whole chapter. But the disciples have gone from basically not understanding who Jesus was, not seeing clearly that he was indeed the Messiah, to, in verses 27 through 30, which I preached last time, Peter makes this great confession. The light bulb finally goes off for Peter and the disciples as they've seen Jesus, his power over death, his power over disease, his power over demons, his power over the devil, his power over nature, his power to teach with authority God's word. And they finally get, Jesus, you are indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer, the chosen one that all the prophecies of the Old Testament, all of the foundation of the Old Testament have pointed us to that, Jesus, you are the fulfillment. And that was a wonderful thing. Amen. For them to understand that Jesus was the son of God, to understand the person of who Christ was. But we're going to see this morning. As great as that was of that revelation, that understanding Peter and the disciples were still growing in their understanding of God's word. So as we go to verse 31, our first truth this morning is Jesus prepares the disciples for the gospel plan of the suffering servant. Jesus prepares the disciples for the gospel plan of the suffering servant. So we've come to this point in the gospel of Mark that's kind of like the hinge of a door. We've seen the first two years of the public ministry of Christ and we're entering into this third year where he's beginning to prepare them of why he came. Stephen has already prayed this morning, Jesus ultimately came to die. It's the gospel plan of the suffering servant. And this was the part we're going to see in this passage. The disciples had a really hard time wrapping their hearts and their minds around that. Look at verse 31. 
It says, He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now that word teach there is the Greek word didasko. It means to provide instruction. It could be in a formal manner, kind of like this morning, or it could just be in informal conversation. And in this case, Jesus has kind of got the disciples to the side. They were walking there to Caesarea Philippi, verses 27 through 30. So it's a little more of an informal occasion where Jesus is beginning to teach them. Now what's the first thing that he teaches them? Well, it says... He shows them that he is indeed the Son of Man. So I had Pastor Jim read to you this morning, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, talks about the Son of Man that comes to the Ancient of Days, and this Son of Man is given everlasting dominion. There's an everlasting kingdom. And, and so that prophecy in Daniel 7 is ultimately pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. This title, Son of Man, is used over 88 times in the Gospels. It's a title that points us to the Messiah, the chosen one. And so Jesus is not only the son of God, he is the son of man. He's the second Adam. Think about the first Adam in the book of Genesis, how he fell. He sinned against God. God gave his word. God gave his commandment. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel, they sin against God, and so sin enters in, and we're all totally depraved. We're all sinners before holy God, but God sends a rescuer. God sends a savior, the second man, the second Adam, and Jesus fulfills what Adam failed at. He lives a perfect life, completely keeping the word of God, and then ultimately he dies on the cross for the sins of his people. Jesus is the son of man. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. And you'll see, this is just one passage of many where the Son of Man is fleshed out for us of what that means. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So when you think about Christmas, it really is God coming in the flesh. Jesus was born as a little baby boy. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. When you think about the cross, the devil thought he was winning, but that was the victory for Christ. Defeating death and sin. In verse 15, he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels. Uh oh. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. All those that believe, all those that are in the covenant of God, the family of God. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Remember the, the title of the message today, that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is our great high priest. 
sympathizes with our weaknesses and our struggles. And then finally, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this morning, no matter who you are or what you're going through, when you look to Christ, he's a savior that understands. He's a savior that will help you in your times of need. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 8. So Jesus is teaching there. And he says, after he, he tells them that he is the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Don't miss that little word, must. This was according to the plan of God. When you go to Acts 2.23, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about this was the plan of redemption before the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge or the foreordaining of God. He was to suffer many things. That means to be in pain in many ways, physically, psychologically. He was to be rejected by the elder, elders and the chief priests and the scribes, which means he was going to be judged as not genuine is not worthy think about this they saw jesus as a fraud that he wasn't the messiah and then he was to be killed which means a death by violent means and then three days later he would rise again the resurrection of christ Pastor Doug, I remember you teaching us this, and you probably got this from somewhere else, but I'm going to give Pastor Doug the credit. I was talking to Tom about this yesterday. Remember this quote. God the Father ordained redemption. Jesus accomplished redemption. And the Holy Spirit sealed it. God the Father ordained redemption this plan of salvation jesus accomplishes redemption and the holy spirit seals it that my friends is good news this is the plan of god this is the gospel it's the plan of salvation it's the plan of the suffering servant now it goes on to say there that he would suffer many things i, I thought about jesus and this is not an exhaustive list but when you think about his life, he was constantly questioned, wasn't he? He was constantly examined, constantly suffering injustice, constantly being falsely accused. He was beaten to a pulp, and he was ultimately crucified for crimes that he never committed. He was indeed the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So I want you to think about that of application to our own lives this morning. If you've ever been falsely accused, if you've ever suffered injustice, if you've ever gone through pain and suffering, Pastor Eric may not understand how you feel, but I can confidently tell you the Lord Jesus Christ knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through at a level that I could never fully express to you, but he can. I do want you to turn to Isaiah 53. I think this passage is so important. I know we've read it many times, but let's read Isaiah 53. This is really the heart of the Christmas season. Because you see, Christmas, the birth of Christ, 
is ultimately leading us to Easter, leading us to the death, burial, and resurrection. Christ came to die to save his people from their sin. Look at Isaiah 53, which, by the way, was written 700 years. This prophecy of Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant was written 700 years before Christ came to earth. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that, that we should look at him. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. You know, I thought about the birth of Jesus. It's so simple and humble, isn't it? He was born in the city of Bethlehem. He was born in a stable, placed in a manger. He grew up in a common Jewish family, the son of a carpenter. There was nothing glorious there, was there? The fulfillment of verse 2 there in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 3. Ultimately, he was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't care. Nobody cared who Christ was. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, not, listen, listen to this, not for his sins, because he was sinless. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think about all the injustice that he went through. And he suffered it for the glory of God. By verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit, no lying found in his mouth. Yet, here again, again, it's the plan of redemption of God. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's good news. Jesus is giving life to his descendants. That's us that are in the faith. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, we talked about family worship this morning. You want to know what you need to share with your kids this morning? You need to know what you need to share with the lost and dying world is the good news of Jesus. The perfect life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. You need to share Isaiah 53. 
You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of this passage. This is the gospel plan. The suffering servant. This is Mark 8.31. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is everything. Everything. They had to get this. Let's go back to Mark 8. It goes on to say there in verse 31 that he would be rejected by these uh, elders and priests and scribes. And when you think about the elders, they were the community leaders. The chief priests were a class of rulers. The scribes were the experts and the copiers of the law. The law of Moses, the Torah, but also their man-made traditional laws. It was kind of like the Jewish religious authority system. It was the Sanhedrin, like our Supreme Court that we have today. The elders were 70 members of the ruling council, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, these religious leaders. The chief priests uh, included the chief high priest and all the high priests that had served before that were still living. And then I've already shared about the scribes of these experts of the law that they would help with the Sanhedrin. And so, Think about this, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the suffering servant and the Jewish religious system said, nope, no, you're not. And they rejected their Messiah. They rejected the Savior. And by the way, the same thing happens today in American culture. We look around, we see God as our creator of all his amazing creation. And you know what we say in our school system? No, you're not. We say God's not the creator. God is the ordainer and designer of marriage and gender. And we could go on and on and on. And in our society and in our culture, man says, no, you're not. hope you catch the weight of that the magnitude of our sin against a holy god god has the right right now in his perfect justice in his perfect wrath he should wipe us off the face of the earth because we reject him but thankfully god is merciful and he's kind and he's patient and he's long-suffering and he's loving and he's giving and he has sent christ to save us, to rescue us from our sin and our wrong thinking and our rebellion and our hatred towards him. So ultimately, Jesus was to be killed there in Mark 8, 31. He was to be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men of Acts 2, 23. Everything I just said was the first century of this rejection of Christ. You know, to be crucified was the most degrading way to die in the Roman culture. It was the death that was set aside for the worst of criminals, for those that were opposing the Roman Empire. It was the way for the Romans to say, if you come against us, you come against our authority, our man authority, this is what's going to happen to you. And so here's what they would do. They would make these criminals carry their crossbeam to their place of execution and then they would be nailed to that cross 
and they would stick them on the highway and they would suffer and they would die and they would typically leave them there for everyone to see. This is what happens when you come against Rome. Guys, there's no way to paint this as a pretty picture. This is not a little cross that we wear around our neck. This is what happened to Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. He was killed violently. He was crucified for the sin of his people. But three days later, hallelujah, amen, the resurrection. We know that Jesus is alive. John 11, 25, I think it is. He's the resurrection and the life. Let me give you some application and we'll move forward. The last two points won't be as long as this first one. Jesus embraced the plan of suffering, the plan of redemption. You see, Jesus can handle suffering, rejection, and the giving of his life for the glory of the Father because this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. And Jesus embraced it. It was for the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 12 tells us. I thought about it this way. Humanity does everything that it can to preserve ourselves, to be liked by all, while Jesus gave himself to please the Father and to rescue his people from their sin. The truth is the kingdom of God advances through the path of suffering. And as we suffer as God's people, know that we have a Savior who has suffered. And he will comfort and sustain us in the midst of our suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, did you catch that? As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ, we share abundantly in his comfort too. Amen? Yes, we live in a fallen world. And yes, the kingdom of God advances through suffering. But as God's people suffer for the advancement of his kingdom, God provides his comfort. In God's economy, suffering is never accidental, but it's ordained by God for his glory, for our good, and for the advancement of his kingdom. So truth one was the gospel plan of the suffering servant. Let's look at the second truth, verse 32. Go back to Mark 8, 32. Peter rejects the gospel plan of the suffering servant. Peter rejects the gospel plan of the suffering servant. Look at verse 32. And he said this plainly. So Jesus, what he said in verse 31, he said it openly. He said it with clarity. This wasn't obscure. This wasn't a parable. He's telling the disciples, this is how it will be. This is how it must be. He's teaching them. He's telling them plainly. But look at what it says. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Let me give you a little application from the text. Don't ever rebuke Jesus. You know, I was sharing this with Callie, I think it was yesterday morning as I was preparing. It's really hard to fathom 
Peter just said a few verses before, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. Jesus then outlines the plan of the gospel. And Peter said, hey, Jesus, come on over here to the side for a second. Uh, that's not how it's going to be. rebuke as I was studying that just so you understand the context and, and how harsh it really was it's the same Greek word that Jesus would use when he was rebuking the demons he was rebuking the devil Peter is rebuking Jesus that way why would Peter do this you know, I think we have to wrestle through that well for the Jews you know, Peter was a Jew as they studied the things that they thought to be true, and some things they had right, some things they didn't, the Messiah was going to bring this time of peace and power and prosperity, which, by the way, that ultimately will come. Jesus will bring those things. You can read the book of Revelation. You know, the Messiah was going to be a male descendant from David, which Jesus was, a great and powerful teacher of God's law, which Jesus was. But in their mind, he was going to be a political military leader right then and there. The land was going to be cleansed of the Gentiles, the Romans, who they had suffered greatly under. I mean, the Jews were a people that suffered greatly under several nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Romans. The Torah was going to be kept perfectly. The temple in Jerusalem was going to be the center of worship. You know, the Messiah was going to bring unity to the people. He was going to defeat all their enemies. And so when Jesus says that he's going to suffer... He's going to be rejected, and he's going to be crucified. Peter was like, that just doesn't match up with what I'm thinking here about the Messiah. That doesn't match up with what I believe. Here's application for us. Jesus has a plan. It's his plan. His plan is not going to change. Therefore, we need to submit to the plan. You want to know what the plan is? Read the plan. It's the Bible. It's not going to change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So if you're not in the faith, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ to save you and forgive you of your sin, you're going to spend eternity suffering God's wrath and judgment for your sin. There's no getting around that. Only Christ can rescue you from the wrath to come, and he does that through the gospel. As Christians, we understand as of who Jesus is, but sometimes it does take us time to understand the things of God, doesn't it? Sometimes we can be like Peter. I remember when I struggling through the sovereignty of God over salvation. Like I knew God was sovereign, but sovereign over salvation, that wasn't what I was taught, you know, growing up. And I'm like, oh, that just, that just can't be true. That, you know, God first chose me. So I, I chose him through repentance and faith because God first chose me and having to wrestle through that. That's what the Bible says. And as we wrestle through that, you, you have to submit to the truth of God's word or even suffering, right? 
I think we all struggle with suffering. Why such hardship and affliction? But as you study the Bible, suffering is through every page, basically, of Scripture. So this health and wealth, prosperity gospel that's out there, that you hear all the time, guys, it's garbage. It's a lie. Lie of Satan. It's not the Bible. It's not the plan. And so for Peter, his thinking on the front end was according to the flesh. It was according to man, and it wasn't right. And he needed to be corrected. But there probably has been, or maybe there are things in our own hearts and mind that aren't right before the Lord. And God has to lovingly correct us. Let's move, move forward. Verse 33, the third truth. So we see that Peter rejected the, the gospel plan, but look at this, verse 33. Jesus rebukes those who reject the gospel plan. Jesus rebukes those who reject the gospel plan of the suffering servant. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples. So Jesus kind of turns away from Peter and he turns and he looks at the disciples because probably they were thinking the same thing as Peter. Peter was just the one that was willing to open his mouth and say it. So he looks at all of them and he rebukes Peter. It's the same Greek word, by the way, this strong exhortation, this strong rebuke of Peter. And look at what he says. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know those times in your life when you just know you're right and you fight tooth and nail to just prove your point that you're right and then you come to find out oh I was wrong and you have to eat and swallow that humble pride that humble pie that's what happens to Peter right here this is one of those ouch moments but Peter needed it now I don't think Jesus is calling Peter Satan, but he is telling Peter, the way you're thinking, what you're saying right now is of the devil. It's not truth. It's not in line with God's plan. He goes on to say, you're not setting your mind on. It means to give serious consideration to something. Peter, you really haven't thought this one through, but once you do, you're going to be all right. But right now, you're speaking like a foolish man. John MacArthur said, The path to glory requires suffering and death by Jesus. But Peter is basically saying, Jesus, you don't have to do that. We're just going to go ahead and move to the path of glory. The path of prosperity. The path of peace. Jesus, your best life now. You don't have to die on the cross. Reminded me of Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil. I'm just going to read it. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said it to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and only shall you serve him. What Peter is saying is basically the same temptation that the devil had tried before at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And when you go to the Gospel of Luke, it actually says that the devil would come back at an opportune time. This is probably that opportune time. So right before Jesus was going to die, his crucifixion, the devil speaking this lie. Jesus, you don't really have to go through what you think you have to go through. And sadly, Peter believes the lie. Now, application. Let's think about it for our own hearts. Are we preoccupied with the things of the world? Or does my heart beat for the things of God? I want you to think about that. Are we wrapped up with the things of the world like Peter was? Peter was thinking in the wrong direction about the wrong things. How many times have we said something foolish? Maybe we should have thought before we opened our mouths. It's real easy to look at Peter. But if you take time to think about your own heart and your own life, you've probably all been there done that. Maybe we believe something foolish for a long time before we really thought about it. Maybe it's a tradition or something that we were taught, but then we get into the Word and we realize that's not really in line with Scripture. Next, we need to receive the chastening and the discipline of the Lord. Guys, Peter needed correcting. And Jesus corrects him. God disciplines those he loves. This is a quote from a book, Furnace of Affliction. God will prune his people, but he doesn't chop them down. The right hand of his mercy knows what the left hand of his severity is doing. The right hand of his mercy knows what the left hand of his severity is doing. You see, Jesus wasn't done with Peter. I don't have time to, to get in all that, but Jesus was ultimately going to call Peter to be a shepherd of his people, to lead them, to guide them. But Peter needed some pruning. Peter needed some pride to be chipped away. So when we think about correcting one another, if it's necessary, may we show grace and patience as we do that. But if there's something in my life that's not